0: Migrants in Lockdown. On Time, Space and Sociality. On Sunday, the 15th of March, Bulgarian born Stella turns on her computer to Skype with her father, who lives back home in Bulgaria. About 20 years ago, she moved to Northern Ireland with her husband to study and work. They bought a house and had two children, who they raised bilingually. She's very close to her family back home. Today, she's worried. A week ago, the Bulgarian authorities announced the first case of COVID-19, confirming that the pandemic had reached her country of birth. In Northern Ireland, the first case had been established three weeks earlier, and Stella had been dreading the news of the virus reaching Bulgaria. Her father is elderly. No doubt the borders will close, and she won't be able to visit him anytime soon. She's right. The day after her Skype call, Prime Minister Boris Johnson advises against all non-essential travel.
1: The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. And this country is not alone.
0: In a televised speech a week later, he declares that people should stay at home, except for limited reasons. Food shopping, daily exercise, and to perform a limited number of key jobs. If possible, people should work from home. Stella and her husband fall in a latter category. In forced isolation, migrants and non-migrants alike are all of a sudden hyper-aware of the temporal, spatial and social conditions of human existence. Anthropologists have explored notions of time, space and sociality in various contexts. In this podcast, I will examine how the pandemic has put the spotlight on temporal, spatial and social experiences and analyze how some migrant families in Northern Ireland have managed time, space and sociality in new ways to deal with the situation. COVID-19 confronted people around the world with the fact that humans are temporal, mortal beings who cannot escape the forces of physical aging. We are all entangled in the unique chronologies of our individual bodies that are conceived, born and die at specific moments in time, The subjective experience of our life worlds may be influenced by different temporal systems, such as work-leisure routines and ritual cycles, but our personal biological clocks tick relentlessly. The constant updates of the COVID-19 death rates have made all humans hyper-aware of this finality of life during deep lockdown, for many migrants, the thought of not being able to jump on the plane to visit vulnerable relatives was unbearable. When I speak to her through Skype in May, 36-year-old Polish Joanna, who moved to Northern Ireland 10 years ago, points out that soon after the lockdown in the UK, she became increasingly concerned about her mother, a teacher who was still going to work in Poland.
1: I was worried that my mum would catch the coronavirus. Given that she is a heavy smoker and has hypertension, she is in a risk group. So at the beginning of that crisis, I was calling her repeatedly over Skype. I was then very relieved when the government finally decided to close the schools.
0: In the late spring, she bought a ticket to fly over in mid-August, but kept a close eye on the changing infection rates in Northern Ireland and Poland. I don't want to risk infecting her, she told me, but I really want to see her. Normally I would be in Poland during the summer, at least for a month. Other migrant women also spoke about messed-up travel rhythms between their countries of settlement and birth. Their stories reflected a second existential fact, namely that of spatial existence. At any one moment in time, our bodies are physically present at a specific location. The forced containment of the lockdown has made us hyper-aware of this emplaced state of being. We can dream, of course, about other places, or meet up virtually with people far away, but we cannot physically be at two places at the same time. The quarantine confronted us with our spatial existence, turning dwellings into confining spaces. American Ashley, who had lived in Ireland for six years, spoke about related challenges. The world
1: quickly contracted around home. My husband and I have a small apartment, that's all we could afford in this part of the city. We now use each room more intensely than before. The house felt a lot smaller. Not having a dedicated workspace, I have to insert myself into a space where my husband is not. The arrangement before was that he worked from home and I went out to my office at work. His situation hasn't changed, but... I bounce around in the apartment. When I get stiff and tired of one place, I move to another, so I basically move between the bedroom and the lounge.
0: Bulgarian Stella also commented on spatial competition.
1: We all started territorializing different spaces in the house. I have territorialized the front room. It happened naturally because I already worked there when working from home two days a week. My husband is in the living room. He sits on the sofa which is a chaise long, so he can sit and slouch. His laptop is on a small coffee table. When he needs to have a team meeting he sits up. My daughter, a university student, has territorialized the conservatory. She likes working there, and my son is mostly in his bedroom."
0: All the women in my study spoke of their attempts to find a balance between their needs for privacy and their needs for social interaction. This ties in with a third general point about the human condition. Humans are social beings who generally cannot survive without other humans. Their social interactions are often regulated by temporal and spatial routines. Travelling between home and work or school, seeing friends, going to the gym, having a Sunday lunch, organizing a birthday party, and so on. During lockdown, all sorts of social interactions lost their taken-for-granted spatio temporal logics. Being a migrant woman myself, having lived in Northern Ireland since 1999, I became interested in this predicament and decided to focus on two questions. First, how did migrant women already experienced in the use of communication technologies to connect with distant relatives in their homelands, adapt their use of these technologies to a new situation? 2. How did they develop new temporal, spatial and social routines as they engaged in new ways with members of their household, with neighbours, with colleagues and local friends? With regard to the first question, Stella told me in April that
1: Being migrants, not much has changed. We normally talk online with family back home and have done so for a long time. It's been 15 years since we started using Skype.
0: For many years, she had video called her parents every Sunday. The digital get-togethers reflected her emotional urge and sense of obligation to nourish cross-generational ties. Twenty-nine-year-old Finnish Tina, also based in Northern Ireland, explained that she and her Austrian husband had lived away from their home countries for almost ten years. Besides visiting them during the holidays, they both called their families at least once a week, and she called one of her grandmothers who lived in a residential home at least twice a week. In addition, she sent occasional pictures or messages to the family's WhatsApp group, and like the other women in my study, During lockdown, communication became more frequent. With some, she began communicating in new ways. She explained that
1: the closure of schools in Austria changed our relations with my husband's family. Suddenly, his 11-year-old little brother would be home all day and could not meet any of his friends or even his grandmother, who lives next door. He would also need help with some of his schoolwork, and soon we noticed that instead of calling twice a week, we started talking at least twice a day.
0: Their laptops allowed them to support the boy, helping him to do his homework and fight boredom. To make it more fun, she said, we bought the same game that he had, and started to play with him online. We'd never done that before. We kept Skype open so that we could chat, and his 76-year-old grandmother, who lived next door, also joined in the game. She already knew how to play computer games, but had never played online with others. The intense virtual activities brought them closer together. The increasing time spent online with relatives did not automatically result in closer relationships. Ashley noted that... A lot of the
1: discussion I see online romanticizes the notion of humans as social animals discussing our deep-seated need for connection, suggesting that we turn to technologies like Zoom to make up for the lack of touch, of face-to-face conversation with those close to us. I find these discourses tend to be limited, and more than a little naive. I have a family who can kindly be described as difficult, and so my own experience is much more complicated.
0: Several scholars have argued against an overly optimistic interpretation of long-distance communication, pointing out that digital technologies can be used as tools of surveillance, control and intimidation. In my earlier research, I found that some migrants felt an unwelcome moral pressure to stay in frequent contact with kin in the homeland. Technologies that afforded immediate co-presence were specifically experienced as invasive forces that could hinder migrants' attempts to connect with people in their new place of residence. From that perspective, the lockdown offered an interesting opportunity to the migrant women. The women based in Northern Ireland all commented that the weekly ritual of clapping for the NHS gave them a chance to get to know their neighbours better. American Betty was very active during the weekly clapping events. She explained.
1: It was on Thursdays when we clapped for the NHS. It brought people together. Afterwards we would stay on for a chat for about half an hour. Then a neighbor and her husband asked, Can you play something for us? So the next week I placed the music stand in front of the house and played a few pieces. Various neighbors listened from a distance. They decorated the hedge with bunting and added a ship's bell. They rang the bell to announce the start of the concert and the start after the break. It felt like a ceremony. Then I asked my son to join me. The first few weeks it was just me, but I wanted him to perform as well. But it took a lot of time to prepare. You can buy duets for trumpet and flute on the internet, but he also had to transpose certain parts. After a few weeks he complained that it was too much work, but it did bring us together.
0: Tina, who lived in a working-class Protestant neighborhood in Belfast, also had a positive story to tell.
1: People in our street play bingo in the street. They sit in front of their houses and play. We also got ice cream once when they ordered an ice cream van to come to our street. And they organize a church ceremony every Sunday. They live stream it on loudspeakers and afterwards there is music and bingo. They also organized a karaoke event recently and decorated the street. There is a real community feel and some of them are part of the same families.
0: Are you the only foreigner in the street?
1: Yes. But people are nice to us. Our relationship with the people in the street has intensified during lockdown. This is partly caused by standing outside, clapping every week. I feel I trust the people in the street.
0: What do you mean?
1: If you need help, you can go to them. They have accepted us. I feel especially closer to the women next door. In the beginning when we moved here, I felt I wanted to move out, but now I feel that we live in a good neighborhood. We have Good neighbors!
0: The migrant women also connected in new ways to areas close to their homes as a result of daily walks. In Northern Ireland, during deep lockdown, we were officially allowed one walk a day. In the Republic of Ireland, the restrictions concerned distance. People could only walk within two kilometers from their homes. Bulgarian Stella said that, For the first time, I have consciously
1: created a mental map of the area. Walking new routes, I make new connections. It's boring to just walk the same routes, and to explore is exciting. There is a whole new network of the neighborhood in my mind. It makes me feel homey, and creates the sense that this is my neighborhood too. I appreciate it more, and feel that this is a nice place to live. Belonging is not the right word for it, it's about a relationship that is both
0: internal and external. Stella made the important point that walking, even when in company, could encourage silent, inner reflection. To me, walking is an important way of not just making
1: connection with place, but with the self. The act of walking produces an internal film. I have walked for a decade from home to work, a walk of about forty-five to fifty minutes. The movement itself sends you to internal worlds at different levels. It can produce a productive chain of thoughts about personal and professional issues. It can also be meditative. When the movement makes space and time flow through your mind, but nothing stays in your mind or the movement triggers an emotional journey, producing a film around
0: emotions and memories. Some of these memories, she said, took her back to her childhood years in Bulgaria, to her grandmother's house, which is where she had spent a lot of time as a child. It was painful, she said, that as she grew older, more and more people with whom she had shared these early experiences were gone. Some had died, and she had lost touch with others. The pandemic and the lockdown situation, she added, had made her even more reflective about human fragility and the passing of times, and left her with bittersweet feelings. To conclude, it is clear that the lockdown has had an enormous impact on the ways in which migrants have experienced and managed time, space and sociality in the spring and the early summer. The partial lifting and re-imposing of restrictions on social-spatial life in the late summer and the early autumn makes clear that migrants and non-migrants alike will have to continue making adjustments to their routines. This podcast was produced and edited by Colm Heatley and Toby James.